In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. <clears throat> In his ecclesiastical polity, Richard Hooker writes that we cannot, and I quote, possibly forsake sin unless we first begin again to love. I therefore conclude that fear worketh no man's inclination to repentance till somewhat else have wrought in us love also. Again, I therefore conclude that fear worketh no man's inclination to repentance till somewhat else have wrought in us love also. End quote. It is just as well that John the Baptist had not read Dr. Hooker. If so, he would have been somewhat conflicted. Here he is on the banks of the Jordan, near to the very place where the king's highway crosses, that great trade route which connected Egypt with China. And John was gathering there crowds with his promise, his threat, that a different kind of king was coming along his highway that he was coming through the wilderness of the human heart, through the moral wilderness that faithless Israel, or what was left of Israel, Judea, had made of the promised land and of the promise. The promise that God would make of this nation a great nation, and that through this great nation God would redeem the world. It hadn't happened, and it was the Romans who now controlled the great trade routes the hill or ridge route along the Judean highlands, the Via Maris, the way of the sea to which Isaiah refers by name. I quote from chapter 9 of, There will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time he has made glorious the way of the sea, in capitals, the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. And finally, we have the king's highway. Now, it was the Romans who made all the important decisions about whom should pass through. For whoever controlled the land controlled the kingdom. Through which the road ran controlled the road. And the revenues which that road generated, the tolls extracted from those who needed safe passage, in order to deliver spices to Babylon or bring incense from somewhere else in the Levant. We thought that open roads was a new idea, not so. And when kings grew impatient with the revenues their own piece of the tollway generated, they put those roads to better use, moving their own armies into the surrounding territories. Why did the Romans maintain indeed transform such a structure and turn it into a model of the, in, uh, the interstate highway of its time. Commerce, certainly, but it was also very nice to have a road so that you were able to move the troops, the legion, swiftly from place to place as needed, where needed, wherever trouble broke out, rebellion. And Rome was always on the watch for rebellion. And Caesar, in this respect, is like any other king of any other little kingdom, Edom, Moab, Ammon. And heavy is the head that wears the crown. Judea, of course, was always looking to rebel. And the king for whom they were waiting was the one who would lead the rebels on. 
Was he the one who was coming? They asked of John as he thrust his bony finger at them and threatened. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. One who is what? More noble than I? More gracious and magnanimous? What kind of king was coming? One mightier than I. One who was coming in power and glory to exercise that might. And he might just exercise that might against them, by the way, for what they had been doing or not doing to prepare the way for his coming to help with that mighty prevenient project of cosmic public works of which Isaiah spoke. Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. John, the messenger, is now entrusted with that task. Is this a literal project of roadworks to which John is calling them? Who knows? Possibly. The calculation of cut and fill, which Isaiah so precisely describes, is still, now as then, the essence of highway engineering. Make straight every, excuse me, sorry. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain. Every valley shall be lifted up, every mountain brought down. Everything uneven shall be straightened out the rough places smoothed out to make of it all one big plain. Cut and fill to make a straight level path, the kind suitable not just for ancient near, near Eastern caravans, camels and donkeys to pick over, and that was enough of a task. The Romans, of course, required something suitable for supply wagons and phalanxes in forced march. You limit the grade to do this, the up and down, and the twisting and turning as much as possible. This is a lot of work. You plan in hilly territory, that would be Israel, to level a grade somewhere in between the mountain tops and the valley bottoms. <coughs> to do that, you cut the tops of the mountains down, or at least carve away around them by cutting into them, and you fill the valleys in, building them up, just like a modern roadway or railway walk along the prairie path. You'll see this work being done every mile. If things are convenient, that which is cut off or carved out, shovel by shovel, barrow by barrow, becomes that which is dumped down to fill in, to build up. Best of the two amounts of stuff are equal. Then, as now, they took that into consideration. You don't want to have to drag what you've just cut too far in order to dump it down where it is going to provide fill for the valley. Now, this is not Landscape Architecture 201. My text in that course was called Grade Easy, and easy it was not. People now like to calculate that kind of burden down to the square foot. It requires a lot of mathematics. Now, as then, at the moment when I reaped the insight that the inscape 
was more important to me than the landscape, <clears throat> that the depths into which the human heart can draw one are darker than the gorges of the Columbia River at dusk, and the heights to which God can draw us inwardly are loftier than the summit of Mount Revelstoke at dawn. But as I continue to discover, the two are not also so unrelated. The one, the outer physical one, the physical highway that is being built is an analogy potentially for the inner truths. And Isaiah's highway is an analogy. God is coming. It's Advent. God is on the move. He's on his way here now, and important to the baptizer, God is not happy. He is coming as a king, but he is coming not just to rescue, but to root out the rebels, the quislings, the collaborators. His justice will be summary and harsh, and it will be widely distributed. It may be just that land that God rescues, and not the people, if worse comes to worse. So John gets a crowd, and he gets them into that section of the muddy river Jordan for their baptism of repentance. And he makes a promise, <clears throat> surely he says more than he knows here, that this coming king is bringing something else than a baptism of repentance. He is bringing a baptism of the Holy Spirit. Now, both of these terms would have befuddled his audience. Holy Spirit would have drawn many a blank stare, and baptism itself was not as universal a practice as it is now. Baptism of any kind is for these frightened people something rather new. If you want to repent in Judea 2,000 years ago, you kill animals and butcher them at the temple and burn them up on a fire. That's what the temple was, a combination abattoir, butcher shop, and barbecue all rolled into one, and the sights and sounds and smells of that process were very much part of life in Jerusalem. Kind of like dropping Holy Name Cathedral into the old stockyards in Chicago, I can imagine. That's a very good simile for what religious <laughs> life was like. And priests were butchers. They stood up to their ankles in blood on high holy days. A very different reality than we imagine by just looking at the pretty pictures. You burn animals on the mountaintop. You don't splash yourself with water in the river in the valley. But the good people get at least that the motivation, the desire of the heart is the same. Self-preservation, survival. The king is finally coming. We've had millennia of his restraint. But now he's coming. This is the time. This is the hour. And in the time being, before that hour is up, we have to find a way of dealing with a king who is not happy who is coming like the Roman legions to put this rebellion down, the rebellion of the human hearts, which has been going on in Jerusalem and Judea for all too long. So if water provides fire insurance, bring it on. We'll deal with the spirit later, whatever on earth that is. Now, if John had read on, of course, in the scroll of the prophet Isaiah, he might himself have got a better sense of what was coming. Because, of course, he couldn't have been more wrong. The king was coming not to kill, but to die. Not to kill, but to be killed. 
not to vanquish the Roman legions with show of force, but to put himself into their hands in a show of surrender. The king was coming not to kill, but to die. And in that death, to set the rebels free from that to which they were enslaved, from that against which they rebelled, in fact, to free them from himself, for himself, to free them from himself and from themselves, for himself. A voice cries, and it cries what? It cries, cry, you cry. That we, like the grass, are about to wither, to wither from the heat of the furnace into which we shall shortly and summarily be thrown, like the chaff that we are, may be. And unless you get to that place, it's very much like, to me, that wonderful chapter, Genesis 22, which opens the scripture to the heart of God. And unless you're on that altar with that knife on its way down, you're not going to experience the grace when God says, I have provided the sacrifice. I, God, will provide the sacrifice. I, God, will be the sacrifice. A voice cries, and it cries what? That we are fallen into the hands of an angry God? Yes, maybe, but that's not what Isaiah says. Isaiah says, lift up your voice, go from that muddy river, go up to the high mountain Jerusalem and lift your voice, proclaim, lift it up, fear not. Fear what? Fear not. Behold, your God does indeed Come with might, and his arm rules. But now, what? Behold your God. Behold the Lord God comes with might, and his arm rules for him. Behold his reward is with him, and his recompense before him. Yes. He will tend his flock like a shepherd, and will gather the lambs, in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. What's this? I know there are perhaps several Isaiahs, but scribal error? What piece of editing is this? This surely does not follow, even though we've heard it said and sung through our entire lives in the faith. This simply does not follow. We are being prepared for the slaughterhouse, not for pasture. Surely. Surely not. And that's the message. That's the good news. Surely not. He's coming in power and might and looking for blood. And then what? taking us in his arms gently, holding us close to his heart like a shepherd, like a good shepherd. Who knew? Well, the gospel is written today, not in the gospel we read. It's nowhere to be found there. It's written in the scroll of the prophet Isaiah today. Thank you very much. Behold your God. Et se homo, behold him. Where do we see him, our God? 
on the cross. That's the blood that must be shed, his, not ours. Who knew? But also this then, back down to the valley, the river valley, baptism, two kinds, spirit and water. That's what he said, right? You get baptized in water, everybody does that now. Everybody who ever warmed a pew on a Sunday morning does that. Spirit baptism, that's a different thing. I'm going back to my Pentecostal inter-time uh, inter, inter right now to get some of this. And believe me, we made a big difference about the difference between spirit baptism and water baptism. Well, we'll deal with that period in due course. It is about baptism in water, and it is about spirit baptism. The text is not setting those two apart either. John says, my water baptism baptizes you for repentance. It's all about guilt, shame, and fear. It's your duty to get baptized so that you can wash away your sins. It's all about scrubbing away your sins. Jesus' baptism is a baptism not of washing, of cleaning, of purifying, Jesus' baptism is a baptism of dying, about drowning in that baptismal pond, going down twice. No, let me get this right. Going down three times and coming up twice. About drowning, about losing your life, your old life, in this pool and getting a new one. It's not about getting a New Year's sets of resolutions. I will do better in the time being. The old me will learn a new way, find a new way. I am on it. I'm all over this. I'm all over this, John the Baptist. Get me into that pool. Get me there right away. I have the fear of God in me. Get me in there, and I'll get my act together. I promise you. Uh-uh. That's good for about 18 hours, maybe. <laughs> if the preacher's done his job. No, that won't do it. The reality of human sin is so profound that just scrubbing up the outside is going to do nothing. You can't possibly disentangle the fiber optics which weave our fallenness into every part of our being. It's not just what we do. It's not even just what we feel. It's the very essence of who we are, tangled up with all that is good. The surgery that is required here is much more radical. You die, you are reborn, simple as that. And you do that as often as is necessary. Not get baptized, please, but you go through that process of repentance as death and new life the gift of the Spirit being received. Now when you do this, this takes me back to my Pentecostal days, which are very much all about hills and valleys. But when you come into this rhythm of death and repentance, the Paschal mystery, death and new life, death and resurrection, you find that life kind of smooths out. And that's not so bad. It doesn't happen all at once, but your valleys start to rise, your mountains come down. I'm sorry, 
We men live for our mountains. And how many wretched spiritual programs are there that take men out into the wilderness and get them to climb a mountain and prove their Christian manliness? You lose your mountains, men. You start to listen to your wives more. You realize that you can't just perpetually refuse to ask for directions. You even start to show how much you care for your children. Well, I'm working on it. The valleys are raised, the mountains are lowered, and what you discover is that that twisted and torturous route that connected you to God, sorry, that's route, has been shortened and made very direct. When you and I begin to get lost, that Holy Spirit opens the way to God's voice and his word and his guidance faster and faster. It's said that the saints are not those who see sinning, but simply who, when they sin, seek repentance more quickly than the rest of us. That's real repentance. You die, you are reborn, and you do it as often as you must. And it's not based on sorrow for the shame of sin. It's based on a loathing for sin and what sin can get between you and God. It's not based on shame. It's based on love. Again, Hooker. I therefore conclude that fear worketh no man's inclination to repentance till somewhat else have brought in us love also. He doesn't say only love. He says love also. The fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. But at some point, perfect love casts out that fear. Without the law, we're as lost as anybody ever was. But the law has to give way to the grace of a God who sees our utter incapacity to save ourselves and shows us by the shedding of his blood that that piece of work has already been done. Jesus will come and show what Isaiah had already shown. If John, if we would only read it a little more often. God comes in wrath, in judgment, and then, who knew, inexplicably averts it. He turns his just judgment on himself. We stand beholding this blinking and bewildered as we should. We have been spared, and no, we are not worthy of such a travesty of divine justice. And we are not worthy that God should then dwell in us, his spirit animating our new life, his life lived in us, his life lived through us. We don't deserve it, but we get it. Thanks be to God. Amen.